Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, this week, we're going to be talking about the Department of Energy. And I have to tell you, the Department of Energy, or the DOE, is making tremendous ongoing progress with renewable energy and solar energy and and energy efficiency. Now, you can kind of get a, a bit of an incorrect picture between what's happening in the political world versus the on-the-ground realities in Washington, D.C., and among the people that are really working in our government. Kind of without a doubt, the the U.S. is continuing to invest on a worldwide basis leadership in renewable energy and energy efficiency. Although we could be doing a lot more in many dimensions, it's not totally gloom and doom when it comes to actually developing new technologies and products and kind of pushing it. From a political standpoint, it's not great, but there's... 100,000 people on the ground in the Department of Energy. They're really making a lot of progress. Just a little bit of background, kind of a surprise about the Department of Energy and, and what they really do. Kind of took a look back at the 2019 spending allocation. That's how much is going to be spent at the DOE in this year, 2019. It's not how much was asked for by the president or the White House. It's actually what was authorized by Congress. So they've been authorized to spend $35 billion. Now, here's the thing that people don't know. $15 billion of that was for the National Nuclear Security Administration. Basically, weapons and cleanup from past nuclear programs. That's why my friend Ernie Moniz, who was the former secretary of the DOE, he's a nuclear physicist from MIT. He was a great head of DOE, great secretary of DOE, because he came from the nuclear industry, and half their budget was nuclear. It's kind of tricky. Did, in my view, a pretty good job negotiating the Iranian nuclear agreement. So almost half of the DOE budget is for nuclear stuff. They've got a budget of $7.2 billion for environmental management. I think that's probably also cleaning up the nuclear mess. $6.6 billion for pure science and about $5 billion for energy programs including $2.5 billion for energy efficiency and renewable energy, $1.3 billion for nuclear energy research, new reactors, things like that, a billion for fossil fuel and energy research, carbon sequestration, things like that, and a billion dollars for miscellaneous programs. So, yeah, out of the $35 billion, $5 billion is for kind of new energy stuff, $7 billion is for science, and probably the rest is for cleaning up the nuclear mess that we've created over the last 75 years. All right. Now, every year, the White House proposes a new budget, and Congress then appropriates funding as they see fit. They take the White House budget as a recommendation. So even though in 2019, the administration recommended large cuts in energy efficiency and, and the renewable energy budgets, the actual spending, the actual authorization by Congress was a little bit up over what they had authorized in 2018. So there's strong ongoing efforts to improve renewable energy, solar, wind, energy efficiency technology. And those efforts are not stopping because of what seems to be a temporary shift away from these new technologies and a shift away from things that are going to help mitigate the climate change problem we have. All right. So the work being done by the DOE, they got about 14,000 direct employees. Those are government employees. They got another 95,000 contractors, full-time and part-time contractors, who are helping the DOE with their mission. So <laughs> there's some people who disparagingly call these hardworking government employees the deep state. That's really not right. These are people who are working in our government that are really committed to their jobs, committed to their 
careers, their areas of expertise in technology, whether it's in the energy industry, in the weather industry, in the defense industry, education. Yeah, pick an area of the government. There's people that are below the political appointee level, the people actually doing all the work, and they're just really busting their butts to do what they think is right, to do what they were hired to do, and to do what they were taught to do. So these are the people that are, have their heads down to do their jobs. They're well-educated, they're smart, they're trained, and they're hired to kind of follow their passion, follow what the, the country needs. We kind of look at them as unsung heroes, especially when the political winds are blowing directly in their face. So the DOE continues to support and drive new energy efficiency and new renewable energy innovations, as well as other um, emerging technologies. They have a couple of national labs out there. These are these are um, uh, organizations funded by the DOE that focus on these efforts. When it comes to energy, it's the, the uh, National Renewable Energy Lab. And they also have uh, the Sandia, Livermore Labs, and things like that kind of sometimes they do more nuclear stuff. But the NREL in Colorado, that's kind of where a lot of the renewable energy research is done. Now, within the Department of Energy, there's also an office called the Solar Energy Technology Office, CETO. I don't know if anybody calls it CETO. It's the Solar Energy Technology Office. We used to call it the Sunshot Office. The Sunshot came from Secretary Chu's effort to say, well, we did the moonshot, let's do the Sunshot. And then Secretary Moniz kind of continued with that. I think when the Trump administration came in, they just changed the name to the whole department to Solar Energy Technology Office. And this office works on photovoltaics. They work on concentrating solar, thermal solar, system integration, kind of, you know, everything to do with solar with the goal of reducing cost, improving affordability, improving reliability, improving the performance of these technologies as they're used. So it's not just the solar cell, it's kind of everything, including getting it to market. So the Solar Energy Technology Office has a number of sub-programs out there that are focused on different solar technologies. And, you know, the efforts that they've been making for, heck, I don't know, a long, long time, towards more efficient and cheaper photovoltaics. That's obvious. We're not going to go into that. But they're also doing a lot of work on system integration, kind of making these solar technologies work with the existing grid, modernizing the electric grid, reducing soft costs. That's near and dear to my heart. Solar electronics like inverters, solar balance of systems like mounting systems, and all kinds of software that are all kind of making this stuff work together and work with other existing systems. They also put effort into what are called market acceleration programs all over the map. And these are ideas that are out there to try and overcome some of the barriers that have naturally developed against solar technology. You can imagine what they are. Almost 20 years I've been fighting utility efforts to maintain the old grid architecture. This is that old grid that's centralized. And the efforts of the Solar Technology Office are really showing that the new distributed grid, I mean, this is just reality. If you buy a a battery system, a solar system for your business or your home, you're going to see that it's cheaper. This new technology is cheaper, especially in California. It's clearly more efficient. It's clearly cleaner and better performing than the old grid technology. And this applies to commercial, residential, and now it even applies to providing backup power here in California, public safety power shutoffs. I mean, customers that have a battery, whether it's residential or commercial, yeah, you know, it's going to be a little inconvenient for 20 seconds, and then boom, the power goes back on, your fridge is working, and you can get back on the internet. All right, let's talk about some of the different departments that they have at the DOE. We talked about a bunch of them. I've been working with the DOE for years, and even before the DOE, on soft costs. 
in the solar industry, we talk about soft costs. That doesn't sound really firm, but it's basically the opposite of hardware. So there's hardware and then there's a little bit of software, but we call it soft costs. It's everything except the solar panels, the racking, the inverters, the wiring, the electrical equipment. It's, it's kind of everything else that goes into a system. What you order and put on the truck and mount, it's kind of everything else. And what the DOE soft cost program is trying to do is remove the market barriers that are creating these high soft costs. I wrote an article in Forbes magazine about seven or eight years ago, just kind of looking at what the scale of this problem is. Believe it or not, according to some data recently from the DOE, soft costs account for about 64% of the total cost of a new solar system. Why? In the U.S., there's 18,000 jurisdictions. A jurisdiction is like a city and town. There's 3,000 utilities. They all have different rules and regulations and equipment requirements and standards and things like that. It just drives the cost through the roof. So when you look at where these soft costs are, it's non-hardware, as I said. It's the installation labor. You think about, oh, it takes a lot of work to put the system in. Well, the reality is the installation labor is not the biggest cost. The biggest cost, if I had to put it into one cluster, would be general overhead. It's all the other people that support the installation. Because solar company, a third of the employees at a well-run company are going to be the guys and gals that do the installation. The other two-thirds, are, they're just kind of keeping the ship running. It's not a surprise. You look at the military, you know, there's people who actually are pointing the rifles and shooting the guns. That's a minority of everybody else. So the biggest category is general overhead. It's administration. It's, it's cost for training. It's rent. It's equipment in the building and the trucks. It's insurance. It's legal costs. It's vehicles. It's accounting. You know, it's just all the staff and even the, the small profit that companies kind of have to make under the same business. Now, the next biggest cost is is something that's lumped together as customer acquisition. I mean, it can be a, a really big category. Basically, that's everything to do with sales. Sales compensation, marketing, advertising, customer relations software, software that salespeople use, and everything related to that. And then the other big category is what's called permitting, inspection, and interconnection. That's not just the direct fees that some cities charge, you know, anywhere from zero to, I mean, heck, we just recently found out that the permit for a battery system is over $800 in San Jose. It's crazy. But the blizzard of paper work. We just have to wait six hours in San Jose to get a battery permit. Just sit on our butt waiting six hours just to get the permit. It's kind of crazy. If you're paying somebody Silicon Valley wages on an administration basis, boy, that's just a lot of money right there. So the DOE soft cost program is really focusing on, on reducing these costs in, in several different areas. And they're too, they've been doing a great job. It's a hard problem to solve because it's mostly policy-oriented and political, but they're making progress by kind of doing some technical assistance to show what's going on. They also call that data analytics and really coming up with the numbers. You're identifying specifically what the problem is, how much it's costing, and then you can kind of attack it. Then business innovation strategies, training, whether it's training of inspectors, optimizing what some of the codes and standards are, training the workforce to make sure that they can operate more efficiently. And the training also, believe it or not, as I said, since the biggest cost is isn't just installation, but the rest of the team. There's some indirect training that can go on there. And then just fundamentally reducing the amount of red tape involved with permitting, inspecting, and interconnecting these solar projects. Some utilities are good, but believe it or not, PGD is pretty good when it comes to interconnecting solar. San Jose is really good when it comes to getting a permit for solar, but if you put a battery on top of that, which is what everybody wants, you know, the time frame can go from a week to three months or longer, so it's, it's challenging. Okay, so we're talking about soft cost programs that have been kind of supported by the Department of Energy Solar Energy Technology Office, or formerly known as SunShot. They've got a bunch of them, and just kind of rattle down a few and not going to go into a lot of detail, but they have a community solar partnership, which is based on reducing solar costs for lower and moderate income 
households. Low and moderate income households need inexpensive, clean solar energy and backup power just as much as other households. So they've got a program for that. They have something that they put together with some groups, including IRAC, the International Renewable Energy Council. They have something called the Solar Training and Education for Professionals Program, STEP. Everything's got an acronym. This is an FLA instead of a TLA. But this program tackles soft costs by addressing the gaps in training and energy education. And, you know, they put together the coordination with a variety of permitting groups, the Solar Training Network, and the Solar Ready Vets Program, getting veterans involved, as well as the solar industry. They've done a lot of work on data analysis, and we talked about that. It's like, show me how much these soft costs are. What's the biggest factor? Once we can identify that, then we can help reduce it. There's something called the Solar Energy Evolution and Diffusion Studies Funding Program. Now, sometimes these acronyms get a little complicated, so they spell out a word. In this case, the word is SEEDS, but that was looking at ways to increase the deployment of solar energy. It's a technical term that's called diffusion. As more and more people use it, more and more people want to get it. It's almost like almost like a virus. They have something called the Orange Button Initiative that they've been supporting, which increases... There's a lot of data involved in solar energy. The data about system performance, about the system characteristics, about the equipment details. And the Orange Button Initiative tries to increase data accessibility and quality by really standardizing a lot of these things and and having a publicly available database. And then there's something called the Solar Market Pathways Program, which looks at new ways of getting solar into the market, including financing mechanisms like PACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy. It's something that was um, hooked up by a guy named Cisco DeVries and was started in Berkeley, and it spread, and it turns out to be a really, really great way to make solar affordable. All right, now we talk about soft costs, but let's talk about a few other things. There's another program at the Solar Energy Technology Office called the Systems Integration Program. And this addresses the technical challenges to solar grid integration. What does that mean? Well, what happens is utilities are worried about the reliability the resilience, security, and affordability of the grid. So, yeah, over the past, heck, 20 years or so, solar generation has grown from from effectively 0% to over 2% of of electricity generation on an annual basis. Some places, it's 15% or more of total annual energy generation. Heck, we got a lot of customers, commercial and residential. It's 100%. We can do it. So what's happening is solar is really continuing to expand on a national level. Faster in California, faster in Hawaii, faster in other states slowly in states like Arkansas and Louisiana. But it's occurring, the solar is going in on an electric grid that was designed more than 100 years ago by George Westinghouse and Thomas Edison and Nikolai Tesla to rely on large central power plants. They generate electricity centrally, and then they send it out on wires like a hub-and-spoke system, and it's designed for one-way power flows. But what happens is you put electricity generation on the roof with solar or even other technology. It could be a battery. It looks like a generator. The power is going to flow from the spokes into the hub to other spokes. So the power has to go back and forth. So this system integration program focuses on five areas that are going to make it easier to integrate solar and related technologies like wind and, and, and batteries into this electric grid. The electric grid's changing. Utilities don't really want it to change, but get over it. So it's kind of exciting about how all that's happening. This system integration program focuses on five areas, planning and operation of the grid, Uh, what they call solar plus X. X really is mostly storage, solar plus storage, but it's also solar plus things like reducing energy use in households or businesses called demand response. 
So send the signal out to all the air conditioners in a commercial business area saying, hey, let's not cool right now between 1 and 2 p.m. because the electricity is spiking in terms of cost. Let's do this a different way. And they can just turn the air conditioning temperature up a few degrees. People would hardly notice and dramatically reduce the cost. So it's solar plus X. There's lots of lots of X's. Most common is energy storage. Power electronics, smart photovoltaic converters for flexible power flow control. We'll talk about that more later. Sensing and communication. When you had just the central utility sending power out, you didn't need as much communication, but now we've got a lot of things happening at what's called the edge of the grid all over these generating systems. Every inverter, every battery, plus all kinds of other activities going on. So there's a lot of communication has to go back and forth. It's kind of of tricky. And then they have codes and standards. So that's what goes on in the system integration group over at the Solar Energy Technology Office. Now, more traditionally, we think about, I used to think about the DOE's actions in solar, really about solar hardware. That's what you see, right? That's the solar panels, the solar cells, the inverters, and things like that. So, you know, particularly with inverters, there's been really rapid technological change with inverters. Heck, just over the last 10 years. Now, the inverters are obviously converting the DC power from a solar panel, DC into the AC that's used by households and businesses. But they're also adding new capabilities to this. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And they're obviously reducing costs. So what happens is these new technologies enable the inverters to have smart functions that actually help support the stability and reliability of the grid. So as part of the SunShot initiative, and these are things that were really pushed by the solar industry and by the the utilities indirectly, they're developing smart inverters. So so there's this thing called the the IEEE 1547.1A. IE is the International Electric, I forgot what the the rest of the E stand for, but it's the Electronic and Electric Industry Standards Group. And what this standard does is it standardizes testing protocols and procedures procedures for three particular advanced smart inverter functionalities, regulating the voltage from the inverter, helping the inverter ride through abnormalities of grid voltage, and providing different power outputs in response to abnormal grid frequency. Now, there's other things that utilities want to do in there, like, you know, shut the darn thing off. We're not going to talk about that yet. But now the utilities can control remotely, very slightly, how these inverters operate, not materially affecting the customer economics, but actually making the grid more reliable rather than less reliable. So what does this mean for business and residential customers? Well, you know, what I've been observing, heck, for over 20 years, the utilities are just complaining that there's too much solar going on. It's going to make the grid crash. It's too much. Too many customers are putting solar on the roof, and it's bad for the grid reliability. And this is both commercial and residential. It's messing up their grid. Well, the grid's really, it's more of a public asset, and it's there to support customers and to deliver cheap and expensive electricity. Just kind of... An anecdote, this hasn't really happened anywhere. The grid hasn't crashed anywhere in the world, to my knowledge, based on too much solar. So really, to me, it's like this is just a problem that they're making up or a problem that they can solve another way. So cry me a river. Remember, utilities, they don't want customers to put in solar or batteries because they want to put the solar and batteries in themselves. They want to upgrade the grid. They don't want customers to own that asset because PG gets a 10.5% profit on the asset. So the more solar that the utility puts in, the more 
batteries that they put in, the more assets they have, the more profit they make. So they don't want customers to put that in. They don't want customers to own assets. And it's an ongoing fight. But state policies are there to try and balance these utility profit concerns with our needs for distributed energy resources, solar on rooftops, batteries in buildings. So, a little bit of a digression, but back to what smart inverters do. Here's what these smart inverters can do. They can handle situations when the voltage gets too high on a particular line, or even too low. It might get too high when there's a lot of solar generation happening at the end of the grid, and the voltage may get too high, and the utility is saying, oh, wow, the voltage is too high over there. We're going to have to shut down the grid. What happens is if you then shut down the grid because the voltage gets too high, then all the solar systems shut down also, and then the voltage collapses, and it really kind of, there's this bad cycle going on. So it allows the inverters to kind of ride through some of these abnormalities. They may send a signal and say, hey, you know, let the inverters uh, support a slightly higher voltage. Or if the frequency diverges too much from 60 hertz, 60 cycles per second, which is the standard for the grid frequency, it'll allow those inverters to keep working. Um, So the smart inverters really help with these problems. So when utilities complain about too much solar, they're going to delay the interconnection, we can use these smart inverters to actually help the grid, and it takes away the utility's arguments that the solar's bad. So we get the system, we get the systems installed, we just activate some of these features, and it improves the grid reliability. You know, unfortunately for the utility, they're not adding those assets, but the grid's getting more reliable rather than less. And I look at the grid that's going on here in California. I've been seeing more blackouts than ever. It's not because there's too much solar. It's because the grid's just not getting maintained. All right. The programs that are probably best known are the photovoltaic programs. They're basically R&D to increase the efficiency, manufacturing, and enhance performance of, of PV systems. So there's still a lot of effort going into that. What's also happening is the industry's kind of standardized on variety of crystalline silicon technology, and we're gradually, gradually, slowly and slowly increasing the efficiency of solar panels, solar cells, but that's not kind of the main focus right now with the DOE. So just kind of in a nutshell, in summary, let's not despair about U.S. solar research. Let's not despair too much about what our government is doing to really support this. We may not be in the U.S. the leaders in the manufacturing of solar panels or even in PV cell research, but the Department of Energy does provide tremendous help to make solar and battery storage and related technologies cheaper and ubiquitous. The money is there. It's budgeted. We could always use more. Congress is making sure that these things continue to get funded. And it's just most importantly, when you kind of get into the government on the ground, get away from the political side of things, there's 100,000 hardworking and committed people to the DOE working on our behalf. And I got a lot of respect for them, and we should all thank them. All right, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast.